everybody out there in podcast land. This is Chris, the Public Safety Guru, bringing you another lecture in the Season 2 NREMT EMT Lecture Prep Series. Today, we will be talking about endocrine and hematological emergencies. But before that, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor or head on over to our webpage, thepublicsafetyguru.com, for up-to-date information about everything EMT. We also have exclusive content for those that become podcast members or join our Patreon channel, which can be found by searching for The EMT Tutor. There, you can find exclusive members-only podcasts, study guides, and tests. Alright, on to your learning. Alright, after this lecture, the EMT student should understand the significance and characteristics associated with diabetes, sickle cell disease, clotting disorders, and the complications associated with each of those disease processes. Additionally, students should be able to demonstrate their knowledge of the characteristics of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. The EMT student should also have an understanding of the appropriate steps in the patient assessment and the pre-hospital treatment for diabetic emergencies. Last, students should have an understanding of hematological emergencies, which are sickle cell disease, hemophilia, thrombophilia, and deep vein thrombosis. As usual, we will identify the knowledge domains that the EMT student should know to do well, not only in their course, but on the test, and finally, national registry. Okay, knowledge domains. When you get done with this lecture, you should be able to describe the anatomy and physiology of the endocrine system and its main function in the body. Additionally, you should understand the role of glucose as it is a major source of energy for the body and its relationship to insulin. These next domains are going to be specifically about diabetes. So you, the EMT student, should have an understanding of diabetes mellitus, hyperglycemia, and hypoglycemia and know the differences between the two as well as the assessment to be able to differentiate between hypo or hyperglycemia. This will be done by understanding the signs and symptoms as it relates to diabetic emergencies. We will also discuss the emergency care for both the conscious and unconscious patient suffering from either hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia. We will also discuss the appropriate medical direction for both the pediatric and geriatric patient suffering from a diabetic emergency and some of the age-related considerations the EMT should know and understand. And under this diabetic umbrella, we're also going to talk about the administration of oral glucose to the patient with a decreased level of consciousness who has a history of diabetes. And to finish up our lecture, we're going to talk about those blood diseases such as sickle cell disease and the complications associated with that disease process as well as blood clotting disorders. All right, grab that pen and paper and let's get to it. The endocrine system directly or indirectly influences everything from our cells, organs, and bodily functions. Now, endocrine disorders can have a multitude of signs and symptoms. In regard to hematological emergencies, they are difficult to assess and treat in the emergency setting. 
but there are some actions that you can do that may possibly save your patient's life. Okay, so let's do a little review and jump into the anatomy and physiology of the endocrine system. Now remember, the endocrine system is a communication system that controls functions inside the body. Endocrine glands secrete message hormones. Now hormones are chemical substances produced by a gland. They travel through the blood to end organs, tissues, or cells that they affect. When it arrives, the message is received and an action takes place. Now, endocrine disorders are caused by an internal communication problem. If a gland is not functioning normally, it may produce either hypersecretion or hyposecretion. Now, hypersecretion is when too much of a hormone is produced than what the body needs. And then obviously, hyposecretion would be not enough of the hormone is produced that the body needs. Now, a gland may be functioning correctly, but the receiving organ may not be responding. So as you can see how these are things that we will not see in the field that will have to be diagnosed by a doctor. Let's talk a little bit about glucose metabolism. The brain needs two things to survive, glucose and oxygen. Now, insulin is necessary for glucose to enter the cells. However, your brain cells are the only cells in the entire body that don't need insulin. So remember that. Every other cell in your body needs insulin to be able to absorb glucose as energy. This is not true for the brain. The brain cells can instantly absorb glucose. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that during the administration of glucose for diabetic emergencies. Now remember, without insulin, the cells do not feed. I want to break this down a little bit more for you so you can wrap your head around what diabetes truly is. So let's talk a little bit about the pancreas. The pancreas produces and stores both glucagon and insulin. Now in the pancreas, you have these cells called the islets of Langerhans. That's islets of Langerhans. And these cells are considered both alpha and beta cells. Now remember this, alpha cells produce glucagon. Once again, alpha cells produce glucagon. Beta cells produce insulin. Beta cells produce insulin. The pancreas stores and secretes insulin and glucagon in response to the level of glucose in the bloodstream. Now let's break this down to help you understand it. In the morning, when a person gets up from their night's sleep, they may not feel hungry right away. But within a certain time period, and obviously it's different for everyone, the body will start to tell you that it's hungry. Usually it's in the way of your stomach grumbling, maybe gurgling a little bit. And if you ignore those initial signs, then, as we all know, you'll probably start to develop a little bit of a headache. And this is when you realize, oh, I better eat. So this is our body's way of saying, hey, look it, it's time for me to get some fuel. And that fuel is glucose. So you eat, and as soon as that food enters your stomach, your body starts sensing that there's food in the stomach, 
and then our endocrine system goes to work. Now, if it's working perfectly, what ends up happening is that as that food is broken down and made into glucose, it now begins to hit the bloodstream. However, the cells cannot absorb that glucose. The cells are protected by a basically a barrier that prevents foreign substances from entering it. It's that unique system that keeps us healthy. With that, the pancreas will sense the levels of glucose in the body and then begin secreting insulin. Once that insulin hits the bloodstream, it makes the cell what we call permeable. In other words, things can enter it. And thus, glucose will enter the cell and the cell will eat and then we have energy. That is what happens with every time we put something in our mouth to eat. And this is part of our wonderful endocrine system. Now, diabetic emergencies happen when this system does not work. Now, in a diabetic emergency, the reason why we tell people to give glucose is due to the fact, as we mentioned earlier, the brain is the only organ in the entire human body that does not need insulin to absorb glucose. So giving someone glucose during a diabetic emergency who needs it can save their life. And this is why it is very, very important. So regardless of the insulin levels that a body has or does not have, if someone needs glucose, and we provide it to them based upon our criteria of being able to swallow, the patient's brain will not suffer any type of damage due to lack of glucose. All right, let's talk about the pathophysiology of diabetes mentalitis. Diabetes mentalitis is a disorder of glucose metabolism such that the body has an impaired ability to get glucose into the cells to be used for energy. This disorder affects about 9.3% of the population. Without treatment, blood glucose levels become too high. In severe cases, it may cause life-threatening illnesses, coma, or death. If diabetes is not managed well, it can have severe complications such as blindness, cardiovascular disease, and kidney disease. Now, this is specific to diabetes mellitus. Now, there are three types of diabetes. There's diabetes mellitus type 1 and diabetes mellitus type 2, as well as pregnancy-induced gestational diabetes. We will break down the differences between all three, However, you're commonly going to respond to either a type 1 or type 2 problem. Now, let's discuss a little bit about the treatments for diabetes. A patient may be prescribed injectable hormones that lower glucose levels. This is the patient that injects himself daily with insulin. Dependent on how the patient manages their diabetes will dictate if they have medical emergencies. Remember, there are two types of medical emergencies involving diabetics, and that is either hypoglycemia, not enough sugar, or hyperglycemia, which is too much sugar. And both are medical emergencies. Now, these medical emergencies are not conducive 
to a certain type of diabetes. Hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia can strike anybody with type 1 or type 2 diabetes. As an EMT, you will encounter many patients displaying the signs and symptoms of high and low blood glucose levels. Hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia can be quite similar in their presentation. Patients suffering from either hypo or hyperglycemia could present with an altered mental status, as well as some of their signs and symptoms could mimic alcohol intoxication. Hypoglycemia can develop if a patient takes his or her medications but fails to eat enough food. In this scenario, the patient takes their medication but does not have enough glucose in the bloodstream. So they utilize all that glucose and there's nothing left in the reservoir. This patient will then become hypoglycemic. In the other scenario, you have a patient who has enough glucose in their body. However, they over medicate themselves, thus reducing that blood glucose in the bloodstream. Now, regardless of how this emergency happens, the patient suffering from hypoglycemia needs immediate treatment. For you, the EMT, that could include oral glucose. And remember, we give oral glucose when the patient is alert and can protect their own airway. If ALS is on scene, ALS may start an IV and provide glucose via that IV. We're gonna spend some time now talking about type one diabetes. Type one is an autoimmune disorder in which the immune system produces antibodies against the pancreatic beta cells. This disorder stops the pancreas from making insulin or making not enough insulin. Without insulin, as we talked about before, glucose cannot enter the cell and the cell cannot produce energy. Type 1 diabetes will usually happen at early childhood through the fourth decade of life. The immune system destroys the ability of the pancreas to produce insulin. The patients must attain insulin from an external source. Patients with type 1 diabetes cannot survive without insulin. Patients who inject insulin often need to check blood glucose levels up to six times or more a day. But you may have seen commercials now showing how people are, are utilizing smart devices and insulin pumps are becoming more commonplace today than they ever have been, which reduces the amount of injections that a diabetic type 1 patient must give themselves. How do these pumps work? Well, what they do is they continuously measure blood glucose levels and provide insulin and correction doses of insulin based on carbohydrate intake at mealtime. These pumps limit the number of times that a patient has to perform a finger stick to test their glucose levels. And I can tell you, many diabetics are happy about that. Now, unfortunately, as with anything mechanical, malfunctions can happen, thus leading to a diabetic emergency. When conducting your assessment and you believe that your patient has a history of diabetes, ask if they have a pump and then ask if the pump has been working effectively. This should become part of your diabetic medical assessment. For testing purposes, remember that type 1 diabetes is the most common metabolic disease of childhood. Now these patients will have symptoms related to eating and drinking, which include polyuria, polydyspia, polyphagia, weight loss, and fatigue. And if you remember, 
Polyuria is frequent urination. Polydyspia is increase in fluid consumption. And polyphagia is severe hunger and increased food take, or I should say food intake. Now, the reason why this happens is that a patient's blood glucose level is above normal and the kidney's filtration system becomes overwhelmed and glucose begins to spill out into the urine. And this is why the person will then have frequent urination as the body's trying to expel that excess glucose. Then of course, this will also lead to the increased fluid consumption because the body is trying to level out those levels. When there is no glucose available to the cells, the body will start burning fat. When the body burns fat rather than glucose, it produces acid waste known as ketones. As ketone levels go up in the body, they spill into the urine. Kidneys will become saturated with glucose and ketones and cannot maintain the acid-base balance in the body, basically the pH. Patients will begin to breathe deeper and faster as the body attempts to reduce that acid level by releasing more carbon dioxide through the lungs. These respirations are known as Kussmaul respirations. If fat metabolism and ketone production continues, a life-threatening illness called diabetic ketoacidosis, aka DKA, can develop. DKA may present as generalized illness along with abdominal pain, body aches, nausea, vomiting, a possible altered mental or status, or unconsciousness. If the patient is unconscious, this condition is severe. If DKA is not rapidly recognized and treated, the patient can die. When a patient with DKA has an altered mental status, ask family or friends about the patient's history and presentation. Obtain a glucose level with a finger stick using a lancet and a glucometer. Don't be surprised if you get a reading over 400 milligrams. All right, let's switch gears now and talk about the other type of diabetes, type two. Type two diabetes is caused by a resistance to the effects of insulin at the cellular level. There is definitely association between obesity and increased resistance to the effects of insulin. The pancreas produces more insulin to make up the increased levels of blood glucose and dysfunction of cellular insulin receptors. This rep response becomes inefficient. The blood glucose level continue to rise and do not respond when the pancreas secretes insulin. This process is called insulin resistance. Insulin resistance can sometimes be improved by exercise and dietary modification. This condition is actually called adult onset diabetes. So let me break this down for you. This is what is basically happening. You have a subject who is eating more food than they should. The body begins to secrete more insulin. However, because of that excess glucose in the body, the body's pancreas could no longer properly secrete insulin and the cells are basically becoming resistance to the resistant to the insulin and thus not able to sense the rising glucose levels. And at that point in time, the person is starting to become overweight and then possibly obese. This subject, based upon life choices, has caused their own diabetes. Now, type 2 diabetes is usually treated with oral medications, and oral medications have a few type of actions on the patient. 
Some actions could include an increased secretion of insulin, but this does pose a risk of hypoglycemia in the patient. Other medications could stimulate the receptors for insulin, while a third action could decrease the effects of glucagon and decrease the release of glucose stored in the liver. Now, there are injectable medications and insulin that are also used for type 2 diabetes, just so you know. Type 2 diabetes is usually discovered during an examination when a patient starts to tell their doctor about signs and symptoms related to high blood glucose levels. And those signs and symptoms could include recurrent infection, a change in vision, and numbness in the feet. We're now going to talk about symptomatic hyperglycemia. Symptomatic hyperglycemia occurs when blood glucose levels are very high. The patient is in a state of altered mental status resulting from several combined problems. Type 1 diabetes leads to ketoacidosis with dehydration from excessive urination. In type 2 diabetes, this leads to a non-chaotic hypersmolar state of dehydration due to the discharge of fluids from all of the body systems and eventually out through the kidneys, leading to fluid imbalance. What does that mean? Well, it means that the entire body is actually losing fluid, not the way that was in type 1 through urination. If an individual has hyperglycemia for a protracted length of time, and what does this mean? It means that their hyperglycemia is going on for months, if not years. And if this happens, the patient will suffer from certain problems, which include wounds that do not heal, numbness in the hands and feet from the nerves being damaged, blindness from the excessive glucose in the optic nerve, renal failure, and subsequently gastric motility problems. You may be asking yourself, well, what the heck is gastric motility? Well, gastric motility is basically the body's ability to be able to take your food and break it up and then move it into the intestines. So that's what gastric motility is. Trust me, it's not something common that we would refer to as EMTs. Now, if you remember, I referred to this syndrome called hypersmolar hyperglycemic non-chaotic syndrome. Believe it or not, there's a mnemonic for that called HHNS. And I'm going to let you know what that is. All right. Now, HHNS is when blood glucose levels are not controlled in diabetes metallogist type 2. All right. So HHNS will develop with that type of uncontrolled glucose levels. And what could this lead to? Well, the signs and symptoms of HHNS include hyperglycemia, altered mental status, drowsiness, or lethargy, severe dehydration, thirst, and dark urine, visual or sensory deficits, partial paralysis or muscle weakness, and last, seizures. Higher glucose levels in the blood cause the excretion of glucose into the urine. Basically, this is the way your body is trying to get rid of that excess glucose. Patients respond by increasing their fluid intake, which causes polyuria. Remember, we explained it a little bit earlier. In HHNS, the patient cannot drink enough fluid to keep up with the increased high glucose levels in the blood. The urine will then become dark and concentrated. 
the patient may become unconscious or have seizure activity due to severe dehydration. So if the patient hasn't gone this far and you're, su you're suspecting this, ask the patient or patient's family, do you notice your urine to be dark? This may be a tall tale sign that the patient is in HHNS. One thing to remember is that hyperglycemia crisis is characterized by a slow onset and excessive urination, thirst, and hunger. Remember that, slow onset, because that's gonna be a little bit different from the next emergency that we're gonna talk about, which is symptomatic hypoglycemia. In symptomatic hypoglycemia, this is an acute emergency in which a patient's blood glucose level drops and must be corrected swiftly. This can occur in patients who inject insulin or use oral medications that stimulate the pancreas to produce more insulin. When insulin levels remain high, glucose is rapidly taken out of the blood. If glucose levels fall, there may be an insufficient amount to supply the brain. The mental status of the patient declines and he or she may become aggressive or display unusual behavior. Unconsciousness and permanent brain damage can quickly follow. Now there are some common reasons for a low blood glucose level in our diabetic patients. The first one being the patient has correctly given themselves their medication. However, they did something a little bit different. Maybe they exercised more than they should have, thus depleting the levels of sugar. Or maybe they didn't eat a meal on time as they usually do, or possibly even skipped a meal. These are possibilities to alter the glucose levels in a patient compliant with their medications. A patient may have properly given themselves their insulin and eaten the proper meal. However, based upon some type of acute illness has caused the glucose levels to fail or fall. Hypoglycemia develops much more quickly than hyperglycemia. In some instances, it can occur in a matter of minutes. Signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia include normal to shallow respirations, pale, moist, clammy skin, diaphoresis, aka sweating, dizziness, headache, a rapid pulse, normal to low blood pressure, altered mental status to include aggressive, confused, lethargic, or unusual behavior, anxious or combative behavior, seizure, fainting, or coma, weakness on the one side of the body, this is when we talked about hypoglycemia could mimic a stroke, and last, rapid changes in mental status. As you can see, a lot of these signs and symptoms are really surrounding themselves around the mental status of the patient. Sometimes though, a tall tale sign is basically the patient complaining of a headache and the headache getting worse. Hypoglycemia is quickly reversed by giving the patient glucose. Without the glucose, however, the patient can sustain permanent brain damage. Minutes count in this emergency. That's why your patient assessment is so important. And speaking of, we're gonna be moving into the patient assessment of our lecture now. Okay, we've been going strong now for about 27 minutes and I normally like to break you at 20 minutes. So let's go ahead and take a break and then jump right back into this. All right, welcome back ladies and gentlemen. While your primary assessment should always be about the same, there are some considerations 
that you should account for in the diabetic emergency. All right, let's first talk about scene size up. Evaluate scene safety and ensure all hazards are addressed. Be careful of the presence of syringes used by patients with diabetes for insulin. Be alert for clues such as syringe, insulin bottles, a plate of food, a glass of orange juice. This may help you to decide what is possibly wrong with the patient. Obviously, use your standard precautions and question bystanders on events leading to your arrival. Keep open the possibility that trauma may have occurred. Then determine the mechanism of injury, MOI, or the nature of illness. After your scene size up has been completed, we're now going to move into the primary assessment. Form your general impression. How does the patient look? Are they anxious, restless, or listless? Are they apathetic or irritable? Are they interacting appropriately with the environment? You should identify life threats and provide life-saving interventions, particularly with the airway. Determine the level of consciousness using AVPU. If unresponsive and you suspect that the patient has diabetes, call for ALS. Patients may have undiagnosed diabetes. If your patient has an altered mental status, assess blood glucose levels if you have the proper equipment and training. Perform cervical spine immobilization when necessary and provide rapid transport. Remember, always carry out a thorough, careful primary assessment paying attention to the ABCs. Assess the patient's airway and breathing. Patients showing signs of inadequate breathing, a pulse ox level less than equal to 94% or altered mental status should receive high flow oxygen via a non-rebreather mask at 12 to 15 liters per minute. Hyperglycemic patients may have rapid, deep Kuzmal respirations and their breath may smell sweet and fruity. Hypoglycemic patients may have normal or shallow to rapid respirations. If the patient is not breathing or having difficulty breathing, open the airway and insert an airway adjunct administer oxygen and assist with ventilations. Continue to monitor ventilations throughout patient care. As far as assessing the circulatory status of the patient, the patient could present with dry, warm skin who is hyperglycemic or moist, pale skin if they're hypoglycemic. Additionally, in hypoglycemic patients, the pulse may be rapid and weak. At this point, you should be making a transport decision. Patients with altered mental status and impaired ability to swallow should be transported promptly. Patients capable of swallowing and conscious enough to maintain their own airway may be further evaluated on scene and interventions can be performed. Remember though, in the hypoglycemic patient, time slash minutes are important for our patient's survival. All right, we're now going to talk a little bit about history taking. Investigate the chief complaint. Obtain a history of the present illness from a responsive patient, family, or bystanders. Responsive diabetic patients will often know what is wrong. If the patient has eaten but not taken insulin, hyperglycemia is more likely. If the patient has taken insulin but not eaten, hypoglycemia is more likely. 
Observe physical signs and symptoms to determine whether the patient is hyperglycemic or hypoglycemic. Obtain the sample history from a responsive patient or a family member or bystander. For a known patient with diabetes, ask, do you take insulin or pills that lower your blood sugar? Do you wear an insulin pump? If so, is it working properly? Have you taken your usual insulin dose or pills today? Have you eaten normally today? Have you had any illness, unusual amount of activity, or stress? Look for an emergency medical identification device. It could be in their wallet, necklace, bracelet, or today on their phone. All right, let's now move into the secondary assessment. Let's first talk about the physical examination. Assess unresponsive patients from head to toe with a secondary assessment of the entire body. Look for clues about the patient's condition. Be alert for secondary illness or injury. There could be trauma due to an altered level of consciousness. When you suspect a diabetic-related problem, focus on the mental status and the patient's ability to swallow as well as protect their airway. You should utilize the Glasgow Coma Scale, GCS, for patient evaluation. If you're able to do so and it falls within your scope of practice, you should attempt to get a blood glucose reading from a glucometer. Well, say that fast three times. Overall though, hypoglycemia, respirations are normal to rapid, pulse is weak and rapid, and skin is typically pale and clammy with a low blood pressure. I always tell my students that hypoglycemia looks like shock. That's what you're looking for. In the hypoglycemic patients, respirations may be deep and rapid, pulse may be rapid, weak, and thready, and skins may be warm and dry with a normal blood pressure. See, that's the complete opposite. Before we move on to reassessment, I want to talk a little bit about the portable glucometer. Now, study the operator's manual for proper use in the field. You need to know your equipment. Know the upper and lower ranges at which your glucometer functions. Normal non-fasting adult and child blood glucose levels range from 80 to 120 milligrams. Neonates should be above 70 milligrams. Well, these are not hard fast rules. A patient who is symptomatic with a blood glucose level less than 60 is in hypoglycemia. If you get a reading that is less than 50, the patient could have significant alterations to their mental status. Now, with signs and symptoms, if you get a reading that is greater than 140, your patient is in hyperglycemia and you can get readings as high as 300 milligrams for those patients that have been in a prolonged hyperglycemic state. These patients will present with severe dehydration as well as other serious signs and symptoms. Okay, moving on, let's hit that reassessment. Reassess the patient with diabetes frequently to assess changes. Are they having an improved mental status? Are the ABCs still intact? How is the patient reacting to interventions performed? You should base the administration of glucose on a serial glucometer reading or a deteriorating level of consciousness. Provide the indicated interventions. For hypoglycemia, 
conscious patients who can swallow without the risk of aspiration, encourage the patient to take glucose tablets if available or drink juice containing sugar. Administer gel preparation or sugary drink if local protocol permits and provide rapid transport to the hospital. For the unconscious patient who is hypoglycemic, patients may risk aspiration. These patients will need IV glucose or intramuscular glucose. Because of this, you the EMT should ensure that ALS is responding as us EMTs are not able to administer this type of glucose. Remember, if in doubt whether the patient has symptomatic hyperglycemia or hypoglycemia, most protocols will err on the side of giving glucose. When in doubt, obviously consult your medical control and local protocols. If you don't have a glucometer available or you're just unable to test for blood glucose levels, you should perform a thorough assessment. Contact the hospital to help sort out the signs and symptoms. But as you can see, I think we've gone over the signs and symptoms very well for you to be able to tell if your patient is hyper or hypoglycemic. We're going to talk about the emergency medical care for diabetic emergencies. And we have talked about giving oral glucose. Now, there are three types of oral glucose. There is a rapidly dissolving gel, large chewable tablets, and a liquid formulation. The only contraindications are the inability to swallow and unconsciousness. Wear gloves before putting anything in the patient's mouth. Follow local protocols for glucose administration. Reassess the patient frequently. Provide transport to the next level of care. That is it for the emergency medical care for diabetic emergencies. Now we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about some of the things that are associated with hypoglycemia, which include seizures, an altered mental status, misdiagnosis of a neurological dysfunction, and the relationship of this emergency to airway management. Seizures should be considered very serious, even in patients with a history of chronic seizures. Don't forget, the possible causes of seizures include infection, poisoning, hypoglycemia, trauma, a decreased level of O2, the idiopathic cause, which is basically unknown causes, fever, common in children, and undiagnosed epilepsy. Though brief seizures are not harmful, they may indicate a potentially life-threatening underlying condition. Now, as far as the management of a seizure, ensure that the airway is clear, place the patient on his or her side if there is no possibility of cervical spine trauma, do not place anything in the patient's mouth, have suctioning equipment ready in case the patient vomits, if the patient is cyanotic or appears to be breathing inadequately, provide O2 or artificial ventilations and transport promptly. We are now going to talk about the altered mental status patient. Now, this may be from other conditions including poisoning, a head injury, a postictal state, or decreased perfusion to the brain. A altered mental status may also be caused by complications of diabetes to include hypoglycemia and ketoacidosis. In these patients, you should be using the mnemonic AEIOU tips to help you to determine the nature of the illness. 
always suspect and check for low blood glucose in patients with an altered mental status. The management of these patients include ensure that the airway is clear, be prepared to provide artificial ventilations, be prepared to suction if the patient vomits, and provide prompt transport. Let's now talk about the misdiagnosis of neurological dysfunction. Occasionally, patients with diabetic emergency are thought to be intoxicated. A diabetic patient confined by police is at risk. An emergency medical identification bracelet, necklace, or card may help to save the patient's life in such situations. A blood glucose test performed at the scene, if protocol allows, or in the emergency room will identify the real problem. Be alert to the potential for diabetes and alcoholism to coexist in a patient. We're gonna end this portion of the lecture talking about airway management in our diabetic emergencies. Remember, your patient may not have a gag reflex or they may vomit and subsequently, if they are altered or unconscious, their tongue may be obstructing their airway. Remember, ABCs are paramount with these patients. You should carefully monitor the airway and place the patient in a lateral recumbent position if protocol allows. Make sure that you always have suction readily available with these patients. Okay, we are now done with the diabetic portion of this lecture and we're now going to talk about the hematological emergencies that you may come across as an EMT. Hematomology is the study of blood-related diseases. Three disorders that can create a pre-hospital emergency include sickle cell disease, hemophilia A, and thrombophilia. Let's break down the anatomy and physiology as we always do. Blood is made up of four components, which include erythrocytes, leukocytes, platelets, and plasma. Each of the components of the blood serves a purpose in maintaining the body's homeostatic balance. Our blood transports oxygen and carbon dioxide into and out of tissues. Red blood cells, otherwise known as RBCs or erythrocytes. Red blood cells contain hemoglobin, which carries oxygen to the tissues. Red blood cells make up about 42 to 40% of our blood volume. Now with white blood cells, otherwise known as WBCs or leukocytes, they collect dead cells and provide for disposal as well as responding to infection in the body. White blood cells make up only 0.1% to 0.2% of our blood volume. Platelets make up about 4 to 7% of our blood cell volume and they were responsible for clot formation and respond to skin or blood vessel damage as well as assist in forming a blood clot to stop bleeding. And last we have plasma. Plasma serves as the transportation medium for blood components, proteins, and minerals. Okay, that is the AMP of blood. We're now gonna jump into the pathophysiology of certain diseases and we're gonna start with sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease, also called hemoglobin S disease, is an inherited blood disorder that affects the red blood cells. It is found predominantly in people of African, Caribbean, and South American ancestry. All newborns in the United States are tested for sickle cell disease shortly after birth. 
People with sickle cell disease have misshapen red blood cells that lead to dysfunction in oxygen binding and unintentional clot formation. Clots may result in a blockage known as vasoocclusive crisis. This can result in hypoxia, substantial pain, and organ damage. Sickled cells have a short lifespan resulting in more cellular waste products in the bloodstream and contributing to sludging, clumping of the blood. Maintaining hydration is important as insufficient hydration leads to increased clumping. Complications associated with sickle cell disease include anemia, gallstones, jaundice, splenic dysfunction, and vasular occlusion with ischemia. Vasular occlusion with ischemia can cause acute chest syndrome, stroke, joint necrosis, pain crisis, acute and chronic organ dysfunction and failure, retinal hemorrhages, and an increased risk of infection. It should be noted that many of these complications are very painful and potentially life-threatening to our patients. Okay, let's talk a little bit about hemophilia now. Hemophilia is a clotting disorder. It is very rare and about 20,000 Americans have this disorder. It usually affects males. People with hemophilia A have a decreased ability to create a clot after an injury which can be life-threatening. These patients will usually have an intravenous replacement known as factor eight, and this infusion will help the patient to form a clot. Common complications of hemophilia A include long-term joint problems that may require a joint replacement, bleeding in the brain, AKA a cerebral hemorrhage, and thrombosis due to the treatment that they receive. Speaking of thrombosis, let's talk a little bit about thrombophilia. Thrombophilia is a disorder in the body's ability to maintain the smooth flow of blood through the venous and arterial systems. The concentration of particular elements in the blood creates clogging or blockage issues. Thrombophilia is a general term for many different conditions that result in the blood clotting more easily than normal. Thrombophilia could be a genetic disorder, it can be caused by medications or other factors, or it could be common with patients with cancer. Clots can spontaneously develop in the blood of this patient. Moving on, we're going to talk about DVT, otherwise known as deep vein thrombosis. This is a common medical problem in sedentary patients and in patients who have had recent injury or surgery. You may encounter several methods to prevent blood clot formation, including blood thinning medications, compression stockings, and mechanical devices. Risk factors for this problem include recent history of joint replacement and complaints of leg swelling, travelers, truck, and long distance bus drivers, and bedridden nursing home patients. As you can see, basically people who did not move. Patients who are at risk will normally receive some type of anticoagulation therapy. This therapy could include oral medications, self-injectable medications, and IV medications while the patient is in the hospital. Now, oral medications are typically administered for at least three months after a diagnosis of DVT. Patients prescribed medications to treat DVT are at increased risk of bleeding complications from things that would not hurt other people. For example, 
a minor trauma incident could cause severe bleeding with patients taking medications to treat DVT. A clot from the DVT can travel from the patient's lower extremity to the lung, causing a pulmonary embolus. A pulmonary emboli can cause chest pain, difficulty breathing, or sudden cardiac arrest. Okay, let's now move into the patient assessment for hematological disorders. Okay, let's first focus on scene safety. Most sickle cell patients will have had a crisis before. Wear gloves and eye protection at a minimum. Determine the number of patients evolved. Be alert for possible trauma. Consider ALS support for your patient. In the primary assessment, ask yourself, is the patient in pain and of African-American or Mediterranean descent? If yes, you may have an undiagnosed sickle cell disease. Perform cervical spine immobilization as necessary and form a general impression. Is the patient anxious, restless, or listless? Is the patient apathetic or irritable? Determine level of consciousness of your patient. Assess the patient's airway and breathing. For patients with inadequate breathing or altered mental status, provide high flow oxygen at 12 to 15 liters per minute with a non-rebreather mask. Patients experiencing a sickle cell crisis may have increased respirations or exhibit signs of pneumonia. For patients with difficulty breathing, open the airway and insert an airway adjunct. Administer oxygen and assist with ventilations. Assess the patient's circulatory status and with sickle cell crisis patients, they may have an increased heart rate to force sickle cells through smaller blood vessels. For suspected hemophilia patients, be alert for signs of acute blood loss. Those signs could include pallor skin color, a weak pulse, and hypotension. You should also note bleeding from an unknown origin, such as nosebleeds, bloody sputum, or blood in the urine or stool, and also be alert for signs of hypoxia which is due to blood loss. At this point, you should be making your transport decision. Transport your patient to the emergency room should always be recommended for any patient who is experiencing a sickle cell crisis or hemophilia, as these can be life-threatening emergencies. Let's now talk about the history taking of hematological emergencies. Once again, investigate the chief complaint. Obtain a history of the present illness from responsive patients, family, or bystanders. Be alert for physical signs indicating a sickle cell crisis, which include swelling of the fingers and toes, a priapism, or the patient being jaundice. You should ask the following questions. Is pain isolated to a single location or felt throughout the body? Is the patient having visual disturbances? Is the patient experiencing nausea, vomiting, or abdominal cramping? Is the patient experiencing chest pain or shortness of breath? At this point, you're going to attain the sample history from a responsive patient or from a family member. You should be asking, have you had a crisis before? When was the last time you had a crisis? How did your last crisis resolve? Have you had any illnesses or an unusual amount of activity or stress lately? From here, we're going to move on to our secondary assessment. You should conduct a systematic exam of your patient. Focus on major joints at which cells congregate. 
Evaluate and document the patient's mental status using AVPU. Obtain a complete set of vital signs including oxygen saturation level. Normal sickle cell crisis vital signs include a normal to rapid respirations, a weak rapid pulse, palm clammy skin, and a low blood pressure. Use a pulse ox if available to get the patient's oxygen saturation and be aware that you may get an inaccurate reading due to the patient's anemia. All right, reassessment. Reassess vital signs frequently to determine changes in the patient's condition. Are there changes in the patient's mental status? Are the ABCs still intact? How is the patient responding to the interventions you performed? Adjust or change the interventions as needed. Document each assessment, your findings, the time of the interventions, and any changes in the patient's condition. Administer supplemental oxygen via a non-rebreather mask at 12 to 15 liters per minute to attempt to compensate for decreased cellular oxygenation related to sickle cell or hemophilia. Hospital care for sickle cell crisis may include analgesics for pain, penicillin to treat infection, IV fluid for hydration, and or a blood transfusion depending on the severity or condition of the patient. For the hemophilic patient, hospital care could include IV therapy to treat hypotension and a transfusion of plasma. Okay, let's now end this part of the lecture with the emergency medical care for hematological disorders. Emergency care is mainly supportive and symptomatic. For patients with inadequate breathing or altered mental status, administer high flow oxygen at 12 to 15 liters via a non-rebreather mask. Place the patient in a position of comfort and transport rapidly to the hospital. That is it, ladies and gentlemen. Unfortunately, that is all that we can do for these patients. And with that, this lecture is now coming to an end. But remember, you can listen to these podcasts ad-free by subscribing and becoming a member either through this podcast or by joining our Patreon channel. Membership grants exclusive learning content such as members-exclusive podcasts, quizzes, tests, and study guides. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening and happy EMTing and good luck in either your course or your test preparation.